Good morning, people of Calvary Church. We have a lot of great stuff to get through as we continue our series, Live Free. So open your Bibles. There are Bibles in the seat racks right in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to take that, follow along with us, because this isn't going to be something I just make up out of thin air. This is coming from the book of Romans, and we're going to be in chapter 14. So go to Romans chapter 14. We started this kind of study of Romans 14 last week, and we're calling it Living Free in a Community of Grace. And so this is the sequel, in a sense, to what we began last week. And so we're going to start in Romans 14 and pick it up in verse 13. So Romans 14, verse 13. You get it? All right, let's get into it. This is what it says. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. But rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin." Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I was just talking with a few people before we got started in our worship service, and we were just saying, boy, all I have to do is just read Romans and then be like, all right, have a great day. Because there's just so many amazing things in this letter. This is a first century letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. It was a church that he had actually never personally visited before, but he had heard about, he was aware of, and so he's hoping to one day visit. And so he writes this letter kind of in advance of his hopeful visit. And he's preparing them and teaching them. The first 11 chapters of Romans are the great theology of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that Jesus has set us free from sin. And then in Romans chapter 12, and going all the way to the end of the letter in chapter 16, which we call it, 
Paul kind of shifts the focus. And now the focus isn't on the gospel, but it's on the response to the good news of Jesus. And so our response to the gospel of Jesus is to live free, is to be followers of Jesus Christ who live free by loving one another. And this includes in chapters 12 through 16, living free by loving one another and and loving the fellow Christian, our brother and sister in Jesus Christ. We're also called in this great letter to love the non-believer, those that haven't yet believed in Jesus Christ. We're called to extend love to them. We're called to love the stranger, those that are from foreign lands or that we do not know. And we're even called in the book of Romans to love our enemies, those who would persecute us, those who would look to attack us or slander us. We're called to love even those as a response to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we're truly living free in this life that God's called us to as Christians, as followers of him. If we don't do that, we're not living free. We're carrying burdens that we were never meant to carry. We're carrying grudges that are frankly exhausting to hold. When we don't love one another, whether that's the Christian, the non-Christian, the stranger, or even our enemy, we are living in bondage. We are not free. And so Paul here is even in Romans 14 saying, I want you to live free as a response to who Jesus is. This is the best way to live the Christian life. And so last week we began this idea of being a community of grace. Living free by being a community. And by community I'm meaning this. I'm meaning it could be your life group. It's a group of Christians. It could be those that you meet with every Friday morning that study the word together. It could be your roommates or your family that live in your home that are believers in Jesus Christ. And in this idea of grace, you know, how do you describe grace? I mean, just my feeble attempt is it's, it's undeserved favor, it's forgiveness, it's patience, it's kindness, it's acceptance. This is the type of community that we're called to be at Calvary Church. When we gather here, like on a Sunday morning, when we walk out to the lobby, when those go pick up their kids that have kids, when there's those that go off to a, a life group or a class or over down the street to eat out, We're called to be this community in wherever we go. And in the first century, uh, in this letter that Paul writes, the community of Rome was struggling because they were beginning to be divided over this whole idea of what they could eat. The beginning of Romans kind of lays, Romans 14 lays that out. So there were some that said, we can't eat meat because we don't know if it's kosher. We don't know if it's according to the Old Testament dietary laws. And we don't know if potentially this meat has been offered to an idol because in Rome there was all kinds of gnarly, crazy pagan worship and they would offer meat in some of these worship festivals to their false gods. And so there was Jewish Christians in particular and some Gentile Christians who said, you know, we we can't tell where the meats come from, if it's kosher, so we're just going to become vegetarians. We're just going to not eat meat. And then there was others that were saying, well, no, in Christ we're free. He set us free through the blood of Jesus. And so we don't have to get hung up on whether the meat's according to Old Testament law. We're under the new covenant, the new promise of Jesus. And so they would eat meat. 
And so in this first century, century church, you have this, what seems like kind of a simple thing, like are you a vegetarian or a carnivore? <laughs> like it's beginning to divide the church. This could ruin the church. And so Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is really concerned by this. And so this is what he's addressing here in Romans chapter 14. But it's not just the first century church. Here in our modern church, in 21st century, and speaking of church, like in the general sense, uh, we struggle with issues just like this. Meat or vegetarians, what are we to do? In our context, uh, one example of this is even just like, what should Pastor Dave wear when he teaches? (laughs) But I'm comfortable in my masculinity. Doesn't he look good in this photo right here? Yeah. Uh, You know, some people say that they, you know, a pastor should wear a suit whenever they teach. This is a way to honor and respect God and honor to respect those that are hearing the word of God. And then there's others, and they have good arguments too, that say, no, no, you know, when a pastor teaches from the Bible, he should be more casual. He should wear clothes that, you know, he would wear in, in a different context. And so there's people that argue for that. And then there's some that say, No, a pastor, when he teaches, in order to connect to this culture that is is living so apart from even what, they are separated from what they know of the truths of the Bible, they need some cultural bridge to help them understand who God is. And so there's some that say, a pastor should dress like this. (laughs) He actually just got sleeved just for this photo. This is amazing. So, uh... Check it out later. No, this Photoshop to its wonderful degree. So what are we to do? Who's the right pastor to lead us at Calvary Church? I mean, you can make great arguments for any of these three options. And any of these three options could divide our church. Just something as simple as what someone wears. What are we to do? What did Paul tell the first century church? Back to Romans 14, verse 13. This is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Verse 14 continues, I know I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So the meat eaters in the first century church would stand up and be like, Amen, Paul. Exactly. We have freedom to eat meat, like vegetarians, back off. But then look at the next verse. I mean, the next part of 14. It says, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And so the meat eaters (laughs) sit down. Verse 15, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Boy, this is key. Don't miss that verse. If something you do hurts your brother someone that's in the family of God. That's not a loving thing, obviously. Verse 15 continues, Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Verse 16, Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of of evil. And then I love verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We, Calvary, fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus, we are called to be a community of grace that pursues the kingdom of God 
over things like food. This is Paul's, this is the heart of Paul's argument and teaching here in Romans 14. In a community of grace, we're called to pursue, actively seek God's kingdom over anything else. Uh, before the 4th of July hit, like the week before, they began selling fireworks here in Santa Ana at different stands around town. It felt like there was more fireworks stands than ever this year. Do you, you agree with me if you've been driving around or you live in this area? Uh, in my neighborhood, we live in Santa Ana here in the city, the fireworks shows begin about eight days before 4th of July. Uh, some are bought legally through the different channels around town. Others are transported from places we will not mention. And we have Disneyland fireworks happening on a nightly basis, <laughs> which people holding canisters three feet from them and shooting them up doesn't make a lot of sense, but it happens. So in our neighborhood, a few days before 4th of July, we're sitting outside eating dinner on a nice evening and just hearing this go off all night, like, bam, 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 bam. It's like, ah, this, this is annoying. I'm getting frustrated by this. I'm getting older because this type of stuff starts annoying and bugging me. <laughs> it's like three days before 4th of July, and I'm inside our house, and I hear this bottle rocket go off. We live across the street from a Santa Ana elementary school. And this bottle rocket goes off in the parking lot. Boom! And I walk outside and I open the door. And I go, hey! Hey! Sorry. <laughs> I want you to know the, the anger I had here. And these three kids are in the parking lot. And they look up and they jump on their bikes. They're probably like junior hires. And they begin riding down the street. And I'm in board shorts, no shoes, t-shirt. And I did what came first to my mind. I just started running after them. <laughs> and I chased them. I pursued them. I had no game plan for what was going to happen next. If these three junior high boys were to stop, I don't know what I would have said. Like, I'm a pastor. You should come to church. Or I don't know what I would do. And I'm not sure. But as I'm getting older... They quickly, quickly outrode me. But I kept running for some reason. I didn't even know where they were, but I just was running. There was something about it that just felt living free. And so I'm pursuing them until finally I was several blocks down the street. And just going, what am I doing? I'm barefoot. This is embarrassing. My kids are in the front yard like several blocks down. Like, what is he doing? I don't get this. <laughs> thinking through this passage and thinking through, I want to pursue Jesus like that. I want to pursue the kingdom of God with this reckless abandon. Not foolish, not thinking through things. We're not called to check our brains at the door when we follow and serve God. But I want to just go all out for God. I want to serve God and follow my Jesus more than anything else in this world. Don't you want that? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you to give you the power and the strength and the passion to make the kingdom of God better than anything else. Because the kingdom of God is led by our King, who is Jesus Christ, the Wonderful One, the Savior, the Leader, the Lord. And so in a community of grace, we're called to pursue the kingdom of God over things 
like food. Sadly, when you look through the scriptures, you hear several accounts, lots of accounts of men and women who chose simple, temporary things over the wonderful kingdom of God. One of the most famous stories comes in the book of Genesis, chapter 27. You can maybe just think about it or reference it later, but it's the story of a guy named Esau. Remember Esau? I mean, some context to Esau's story is that in Genesis, God makes this covenant with Abraham. And he says, you will be my people and I will bless you. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. And out of you, all the families of the world, all the nations will be blessed. And again, there's like this little hint of the Messiah that Jesus is coming, even in this original covenant between God and Abraham. There's a problem here. Abraham can't have kids. Him and his wife are barren and they're old. And so they wonder, God, how are you going to fulfill this promise? How are we going to be the fathers and parents of this great nation? We can't even have one child. And yet God is faithful. God is always faithful. And so God gives them a son. His name is Isaac. And Isaac grows up and marries a woman named Rebecca. And together they have twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is born first. So Esau receives the firstborn status. He receives the ability to take on the inheritance that God gave to Abraham, this covenant that God had made with Abraham. It passed from Isaac, and now it was going to pass to Esau. But there was a problem, is that Jacob wanted that inheritance too, and so did his mom. And we talked about this a couple years ago when we went through the book of Genesis. Anyways, Esau ends up selling his birthright, selling this covenant, in a sense, that God was willing to bless him with, to give him out of God's grace. And you know what he sells it for? Thousands of cattle. No. Like the best property ever. No. All the money that he could ever dream for. No. Esau sells his inheritance, his birthright, for a bowl of soup. <laughs> it's the worst trade in the history of anything. <laughs> For a bowl of soup, we're not even talking about like soup plantation where you get like bottomless soup and you can keep going back. This is one bowl of soup. Esau gives up the kingdom of God and the blessings of this kingdom for a bowl of soup. It's tragedy. And then you keep reading through the scriptures and it happens all over the place. You have uh, several people that are like this. You have Samson. Samson basically gives up his leadership post his ability to be used by God for a girl, for a relationship. This girl worships false gods and she leads Samson in places he could have never dreamed of going as he walks away from God. Ultimately, she leads him to his death. And Samson trades the kingdom of God for a temporary relationship. You have a guy like King Saul, the first anointed and appointed king of this nation of Israel. And he gives up his leadership post, this post that had been given to him by the grace of God. He gives it up so that he can receive wisdom, temporary wisdom from an oracle. He trades the things, the kingdom of God for temporary wisdom and to be adored by people. And then it continues, a guy like Absalom, the son of David, when he watches his sister be brutally terrorized by a stepbrother, in this dysfunctional family of David, 
Absalom trades the kingdom of God to seek revenge on his stepbrother. He gives it up for something that's temporary, that's for something that will not satisfy. And then you come into the New Testament and you read in Matthew 19 about the rich young ruler. And this rich guy, young guy, he comes to Jesus. And in Matthew 19, verses 21 and 22, you read about their interaction. Just listen. It says, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And then come follow me. And then listen to what the guy said. But the young man heard this statement, and he went away grieving. He went away sad. For he was one who owned much property. This rich young ruler trades the blessings, the relationship that he could have with God and in his kingdom for temporary wealth that he could never take with him beyond this world. Doesn't make sense, does it? The kingdom of God is more than just about temporary things, food and drink. So like Esau, like Samson, like Absalom, like this rich young ruler, now let's talk about me and you. We're like this, aren't we? We're tempted, we're drawn away from the kingdom of God to create our own little kingdoms, our own little spots in the world where we can live in freedom, where we can make our own decisions, where we are in control. We're all tempted to do that in our daily lives. Some of it's very noticeable. Some of it is more subtle. But we're all in the process of being drawn away from the true kingdom of God and trying to build our own. I just read last week or so about this guy named Jeremiah Heaton. Jeremiah lives in Virginia. And last year or so, his daughter turned six. And she said, Daddy, I want to be a princess for my birthday. And his heart melted from that and goes, honey, I'm going to make you a princess. And so what Jeremiah ended up doing, he lives in Virginia. He began researching where in the world there could be a spot of land that no country had claimed. And so he began researching this and he found this 800 mile stretch between Egypt and Sudan. And so on June 16th, this is last month, 2014, Jeremiah traveled to this spot and his little girl who was turning seven on June 16th created this flag and he planted this flag in between Egypt and Sudan and he claimed it for his family. This happened a month ago and he goes, I am now the king of this 800 mile stretch of desert and my daughter will be the princess. I'm fulfilling my promise to her. So far, the UN has not (laughs) recognized his kingship. But no one else has claimed this land. Right now, his flag flies in this spot. One of the things I was thinking is like, oh man, this is for her seventh birthday? Like, what's going to happen when she turns 16? (laughs) He's just like, he has no hope. But this is us, huh? We're trying to plant our flag and say, okay, I'm going to build my little kingdom. I'm going to be in control of it and I'm going to lead it. And it'll be a thing that just, I, you know, it, it, it works. And yet it doesn't work, does it? We try to build our kingdoms. All we find is frustration and burdens and stress and failure. 
We are to be about the kingdom of God. This king who rules the kingdom, which is Jesus. So in this community of grace, pursue the kingdom of God over temporary things like food. And so what does this mean practically here in Romans 14? Well, it looks something like this. Don't let trivial, non-essential things like food cause us to make another brother or sister in Christ stumble. So as we pursue the kingdom of God, make sure that the things that you're involved in don't cause someone else to stumble. In the first century, they'd be very aware of what a stumbling stone would look like. In Rome, the roads and streets were put together with stones. And so as a street would decay and get old, stones would begin to pop up. And so people would be walking around and they would no doubt trip over these stones, these stumbling stones. And so as Paul's writing these words of don't allow your conduct to make another Christian stumble, his hearers probably had the physical scars to remember what that looks like physically. Yeah, I know what it's like to fall and to be surprised by that. So spiritually, guard your life, guard your decisions so that you don't cause someone to do this. If you pull back a little bit from where we're at in 2014, and you look at like the last hundred years of what the church has looked like, not just Calvary, but the Western church, let's say that. You had in the early 20th century a response to the secularization of the United States as a response to Darwinism and evolution, which began to come into the schools, as a response to the moral slide of our culture. You had the church retreat. You had the church close the gates and, and, and close the ranks in a sense and say, we're going to protect ourselves. For the purity of the church, we're going to separate ourselves from the world. And what this turned into was fundamentalism. It was the idea that, well, this is what a Christian does and this is what a Christian doesn't. And it's very black and white. And then at the end of the 20th century, we began to see this transition take place in the Western church. Rick Warren starts wearing Hawaiian shirts. And all of a sudden, like, it's okay to kind of dress more casual at church. We begin to change the style of worship. This is transitional period, the late 20th century. You can say like 1970 to, to the year 2000. And now here in the 21st century, we live in a period as the church that you could kind of argue is more free than what previous generations experienced as they walked with Jesus and, and were a community of grace. I mean, now the church is called and we challenge each other, hey, don't be separated from the world but be salt and light in the world. Do you kind of hear that message? It's be missional. Take your vocation, take your everyday life, take going to Little League games and driving around Orange County and don't leave Jesus at the door, but bring Jesus into the dark and hard places. And so this has been our call. That's good. But I want to warn us. I believe that in this freedom age, in a sense of, Okay, well, we can go to movies. <laughs> That's okay. I believe that at times, we can develop pride. Where we can say, well, don't tell me what to do. If you tell me what to do, then, then you're being legalistic. And legalism is bad. I mean, you're a Pharisee. 
And like, no one wants to be a Pharisee, right? Like, that's like the ultimate trump card in Christianity. I don't want to be Pharisaical. And so we've developed this pride. And yet, in our freedoms, as Paul is saying here in chapter 14, spilling into 15, we're not to allow our freedoms to lord over others, to be prideful about our freedom, but instead we're to walk in humility, realizing that our actions and our decisions don't just impact us, but they impact everyone that we're in community with. On Wednesday, I was driving up to Forest Home, and uh, I was making the transition from, I think it's the 215 to the 10, and I'm swinging over this kind of on-ramp to get onto the 10, and this woman is driving this SUV, and she doesn't see me, and she just cuts over into the far right lane. And so I have to go and have my two boys in the car, and I just kind of go off to the shoulder. And I'm driving on the shoulder, you know, just trying to avoid getting hit by her. And so this is probably a mistake on my part, but I just said, you know, I'm going to speed up because I don't want to slow down, so I'm just going to speed up and go in front of her. And so I do that as I'm driving like this, and I get in front of her, and she goes, and she goes like, Aah! but she used different fingers. But, um, <laughs> and I'm thinking of this, and I'm going, man, she had no idea she cut me off. Like, her, in her world, her world was all about her. She had no idea that I was driving on the shoulder because she had turned into my lane. And I feel like that's how we live a lot of our Christian lives. We just have, like, this tunnel vision where we don't realize that our actions impact other people. We live these selfish lives. Paul is saying, let go of your pride. Let go of selfishness. Realize that in this community of grace... You're called to even let go of your freedoms for the benefit of others. Because you see, when you're serving Jesus and the kingdom of God, you allow the fruits of the Spirit to be more important than your freedoms. Can you say amen to that if you agree? Amen. And so in verse 17, it says, This is the fruit of the Spirit. Righteousness, peace, joy. Those things are more important than our freedoms. And then in this community of grace, we are called to pursue other people's good above our own interests. This just plays right into what I just said. Verse 19, it goes on to say, So then we pursue the things which make for peace. And we build up one another. Verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. The Christian life is about building others up, not tearing them down. The primary tool that we use to demolition each other is our tongue, is our words. It's the primary tool that the enemy uses and tempts us with to tear each other down and not build each other up. I should be the first one to stand up and say, yeah, that's me. And so here's what I want us to do just in this moment. Would you just close your eyes? And if you're new here, I promise we're not going to give you Kool-Aid right now or anything like that. But will you just close your eyes? And I want to lead you through some silent confession. Just close your eyes where you're at. Will you ask the Lord quietly, not out loud, but just in your heart, God, show me, convict me in this moment 
of times that my words have torn down another Christian and not built them up. Just give the Spirit about 30 seconds to do that for you. And let me have the privilege of just praying over us. Father, I confess for me and on behalf of my brothers and sisters that as we've attempted to live in this community of grace here at Calvary, we have used our words to tear down others. There are literally people in this room, Lord, who you know who have battle scars from our words. God, we ask and we confess that you would forgive us of these things. Lord, even give us the desire to reconcile with somebody that we know who we've hurt with our words. And God, change us. Make us people that live out this idea of community of grace in action and in ton. Thank you, God, that you hear us. You respond to this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple more thoughts. Verse 21 and 22, it talks about the idea of a Christian conscience, of being convicted by God and responding to how God convicts us. And as you think through, okay, well, as I do big things like buy cars and I do small things like post on Instagram, what are... What are some things, what are some questions I should ask myself to even allow my Christian conviction, the Spirit, to speak to me and give me wisdom in the things that I do? Because I don't want to make another Christian stumble. I don't want to use my words or my actions to tear down another believer. I want to build them up. And so here's even some decent questions to consider. I'm not expecting you to memorize these and walk them through every single time you make a decision. But I think in the back of our minds, these are good things to talk about and to think through. It's questions like, is this decision clearly forbidden by Scripture? Do the words of God speak against this? Then don't do it. Question two, would this decision tempt me to sin? It might not be sinful, but it could lead me towards sin. Question three, would this decision tempt others to sin? Question four, could a weaker Christian be offended by what I do in this decision? By what I purchase or what I say online, could a weaker Christian be offended by that? And question five, while enjoying the freedom in Christ to make this decision, in other words, God has given me the freedom to do this, would foregoing this freedom bring peace and unity to my Christian community? I think these are really good questions to wrestle with. Because again, as Romans 15.1 goes on to say, the Christian life is not about pleasing our own interests. But the Christian life is about pleasing our neighbor. And notice it says, not for our neighbor's interest, but for our neighbor's good. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. What's the motivation behind all of this? Verse 3 of Romans 15. Your motivation for living this community of grace is that God has pursued you. 
is that he's cleansed you of sin when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and he's giving you hope through Jesus. Picture me running after these three bikers. I'm gonna get you. (laughs) Picture Jesus, the God of the universe coming into our world and pursuing you. Not to get you, but to bring you home. To love you. To cleanse you. To transform you. Romans 15, 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a direct quote from Psalm 69. It's a messianic messianic prophecy. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. The reproaches of those who cursed God, who turned their back on God, who made their own little kingdoms apart from God. The weight of their sin, the consequences of those decisions have been poured on Jesus. He's taken it willingly on himself. And so Jesus is our savior and Jesus is our example. Letting go of his rights and saying, I will die for them. Jesus changes our lives. You see, his mission statement comes from Matthew 20, 28, when Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. This is our God. So why should we let go of our freedoms for the sake of others? Because Jesus did so for us. Why do we take such concern when other people stumble? I mean, that's their deal. I'm living my life. It's their problem if they're offended by what I'm doing. Because Jesus demonstrated his love and value for each person, as Romans 14 says, by dying for them. It's important that we care for them as well. As we consider what we should do to respond, I want us to think through a few things. One, if you're not a Christian... Accept Jesus Christ. Trade your fragile temporary kingdom for the kingdom of Jesus who came into our world, lived the life you couldn't live, went to the cross, died on the cross, and then rose again conquering death and sin. And because of that, those who place their faith in Jesus can be forgiven for today and for every day. You're cleansed once and for all. So today, make today the day you receive Jesus by faith. There's a little booklet in the chair rack in front of you. Pull that out. You can read through it. It walks you through how to become a Christian today. For others, we're called to jump more into community than we're currently in. We're called to experience this community of grace. Maybe you've been hurt in the past, but now is a time to receive healing and to be a full participant in a community of grace. Life groups is the way that we do it here at Calvary. Challenge you to get involved in a life group beginning this fall. And then others of us, you may even need encouragement and help to pursue reconciliation with someone that you've hurt, someone that you've torn down, or someone that's torn down you. And our Calvary counseling ministry would be a great place to start with that. And so as we continue to respond through worship, I'd love for us to respond beginning in chapter 15, verse 4, with this reading as Paul lays out, this is how you're called to live. And so if you will, will you stand with me? And I want to lead us in a response to who God is.
I'll read the leader parts, and then we as a community of grace will lead the parts that say church. If you can see on the screen from your seat. I'll begin. For what it is written in earlier times was written for our instruction. And then we say, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And I say, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. And we say, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is our call. And you don't just give us this call and then say, good luck. But you give us your spirit to live this out, to have the strength and power to be this type of community of grace. God, I pray that you would deal with us and convict us of areas that we fall short, but then also meet us with the glorious good news that you've rescued and redeemed us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.